This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey there, I'm Jason Gotts, and welcome to Think Again, a Big Think production. This episode of Think Again is brought to you by Big Think Edge. Edge is education for companies, because companies, like people, need to learn to grow. Edge applies big ideas from the world's top experts to the challenges of career, entrepreneurship, and professional life, and it can be customized for the learning needs of businesses of any size. Think Again is a remix. Each week, our producers surprise me and my special guest with a clip from Big Think's massive archive of interviews that we've been taping since 2008 with just about every smart person you can think of. We listen, then we respond. Today, I'm joined by poet and educator Clint Smith. He is a 2014 National Poetry Slam champion, and he has served as a cultural ambassador for the U.S. Department of State. And he's done two very well-loved TED Talks. Welcome to the show, Clint. Thank you for having me. When you were teaching, did your students ever discover videos of your slam poetry and torment you with them? <laughs> they did, actually. Um, it was something that when I first started teaching, I, I kept kind of on the down low. I kept it as a secret. And then one of my students came in one day, and I, I had a beard when I first started teaching. And a lot of my videos at that point, back in 2010, 2011, were me clean-shaven. And one of my students came in, they were like, Mr. Smith, I saw this video of this guy who, like, looked like a younger version of you. It was like, do you have a brother? Like, <laughs> you know, he's like, he's really good at poetry. I wonder if he can like come here and like maybe he can do some poems and like right. we can have a cipher. And and I was like, actually, that's me. And they were like, what? You're boring. Like, they, that, <laughs> this person is exciting. Like, that's crazy. You don't you don't do poetry. And then I was like, oh man, my students think I'm boring. Dang, I gotta switch it up. Yeah, no. It so was, did you start to bring that? And so then Clint I, Smith the poet into the classroom or whatever yeah, that aspect of yourself. But, yeah, I started making it like an integral part of my practice. And the thing about teenagers is that they're very honest. And so I would come in with a new poem, be like, guys, I'm going to share this. And, and I can tell if it's something that's going to work by the sort of awkward silence that exists <laughs> after I read something or the rapturous applause. So they were sort of unpaid editors. They were. They were <laughs> in, a, in a way that I was deeply appreciative of and frightened of at the same time. Yeah, they're a yeah. tough crowd, I, I would think. All right, so are you ready to see what the surprise videos are that our producers have chosen for us this week? I'm very excited. All right. Okay, Jonathan, what trickery will you foist upon us today? So for this episode, I picked Ray Kurzweil. A lot of people think his predictions are really out there, but he's quite on the mark quite a bit. And in this clip, he talks about how your brain of the future might operate. We have 300 million pattern recognizers in the neocortex by my estimate that hierarchy we build ourselves, that each of these pattern recognizers is capable of connecting itself to other neocortexes to build this hierarchy. We build that hierarchy from the 
moment we're born or before that. We're constantly building it. But we run up against this limitation of 300 million. We'll be able to extend that and think in the cloud. You know, if you do anything interesting with this, do a search or a language translation or bring up a map or ask it a question. It doesn't take place in the box. It goes out to the cloud. We're going to put these just really gateways. This is a gateway to the cloud. We're going to put gateways to the cloud in our brains and have more than 300 million. Just like the cloud can give you a thousand or a million computers for a tenth of a second, you need another billion pattern recognizers. You'll be able to access that in the cloud. So it's interesting. I think part of the thing that stands out to me most about that is this idea of uh, human potential, right? And that we have limited ourselves to an understanding of what human beings are capable of doing and not doing. So as an educator, I'm, I'm very interested in that. I'm always interested in the idea of malleable intelligence and even sort of interrogating what we mean when we say intelligence and how intelligence is sort of conceived and cultivated and recognizing that there's always been this sort of existential conversation around nurture versus nature and like which one shapes who we come to be. And I think what a lot of the research now is showing is that quote unquote nurture the opportunities you have, the environment you grow up in, you know, the formal schooling and informal schooling you have the opportunity to, to engage with, those are the things that shape how, how intelligent one is or not, and really pushing back against this notion of innate intelligence and, and that people have a certain sort of capacity that they can not cross in a threshold of, of intelligence that they're incapable of moving beyond simply because of who they are, which kind of goes right. into this neuroplasticity on right. the one hand, the idea that the brain can develop yeah, throughout life. Yeah, valuable intelligence. Yeah, which is the encouraging corollary that no matter how old you are, you have the opportunity to learn and change and, and yeah. grow. And then also epigenetics, mm. the idea that you do have DNA, you do have chromosomes, Certainly. they do contain potential, but your environment makes a huge impact on how you express that. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, for me, I'm always thinking about this in the context of, since I I study and research race, and so part of what I always think of when I hear things like that are how, you know, historically, people of color have been told. We've had research used specifically, whether it's the bell curve (laughs) or whether it's, you know, different sorts of, like, phrenology that people and scientists and futurists and whatnot will use to say what we are capable of or not capable right. of. And so I think it's impossible for me to think of, of making the human brain do things that it is currently incapable of doing. Right. I'm always thinking of like who will and won't have access to those sorts of things and what, what are the implications of the people who do and don't have access to that. Right. Like, and we already exist in a world of deep and pernicious inequality. And part of me is a scholar of inequality, thinking like, you know, if there's a group of 50 people who have AI potential, are they going to like rule the world? Not on some conspiracy stuff, but you know. No, but yeah, I mean, Ray Kurzweil, he is part of a group called Singularity University, and most of the folks involved in that group are in Silicon Valley. And these are relatively wealthy people, and they will have access first to this technology. Mm. Although I've heard it said that another way to look at that is that they'll be the first guinea pigs for the technology. Huh. Yeah, no, definitely. So it could go either way. Or the world just turns into a Terminator movie. And right, something screwed. else entirely yeah. could happen. That's right, we don't know. So I wanted to go back to something you were saying before about kind of the history of 
you know, some people in this country being told that they were genetically inferior right. and incapable of achieving what others could achieve. My paternal grandfather was at Cold Spring Harbor and apparently the prior generation of scientists at Cold Spring Harbor to my grandfather were doing eugenics. Mm -hmm. That's why that lab was started. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I just finished my first year of coursework at Harvard and we have to take statistics courses. And so, you know, it's interesting to sit there and recognize and reckon with that statistics was largely founded by eugenicists, right? It was founded right. with the specific intentionality to demonstrate that some people were inherently superior to others. You know, so in all scholarship, I think we have to really contextualize and interrogate where these things are coming from. And not to say, you know, that because statistics was started by eugenicists doesn't mean that I refuse to, like, I'm never going to do statistics. I'm never, even though right. that would have been easier for my own sort of quantitative disposition. <laughs> but, yeah, no, I, I think we have to understand where these things have come from, especially someone who now exists both as an artist and a researcher, that the history of those things and people who have been considered great in those things like right. are often laden with pathology. Whether it's Wallace Stevens, who's like you know, an incredible poet, but is also really racist. Uh, <laughs> right. Or you have right. Pearson, who founded statistics and you know was a eugenicist. And so just right. understanding all of those things. Yeah, is and I guess as someone who comes from a family of scientists but is not a scientist myself, mm -hmm. I am always eager that we should somehow find a way to not throw the baby out with the bathwater. You know, that we should be able to take what we're learning from the genome because some people would say that those frameworks are so deeply embedded mm. in the technologies and in the ways that we think about them yeah. that it's almost impossible to take advantage of, of the science and the knowledge and the tools mm. uh, without smuggling in all of the biases yeah. and, and the you know attitudes that come along with them. But I think that ends us up in very dangerous territory where sort of everything is relative and you can't trust any research. Yes, so that's a dangerous so. precedent. Um, I think the most important thing, kind of like you said, is to, to be aware of those, as, to be as conscious as possible and as reflective as possible about the biases and, and sort of unconscious ways we've been socialized to, to think about the world and how science and, and research and things like that often reflect our biases even when we're not cognizant of it. Right. Yeah, I mean, in reality, of course, it doesn't seem that there's any obvious or present danger of us throwing out science altogether. Yeah, it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't seem like, well, you know, <laughs> some folks in Congress, you never know. <laughs> that's true, you know, that's true, actually. All right, um, so let us see what the next clip is that they have in store for us. Okay, we're ready, Elizabeth. Here's one from Alain de Botton, who is a French philosopher who's been very popular on our site. This is one of his most popular videos on status anxiety. Status anxiety is one of the most pernicious, widespread of all diseases. It can ruin large sections of our lives, and a good approach to life means having a philosophy that we can deal with it and recognize the problem for what it is. Look, as soon as you finish college, what starts to matter is what you do in life. The first question becomes, what do you do? And according to how you answer that question, people are either incredibly pleased to see you or make a run for it. Capitalism is a machine that recognizes outward financial 
external achievement. And most of us carry all kinds of richness which we're unable to translate into that language. The cruelty of the modern world, the cruelty of New York City, for example, is that this is a city where people give you 30 seconds and not much longer if you're not careful. And that's very challenging, it cuts people up inside. It literally drives you crazy. Where shall we begin with this one? I'm thinking about the fact that you've been a teacher, which mm. in our society is a ridiculously low status profession for mm. how important it is, and the fact that you're now going to Harvard, which is possibly the highest status institution yeah. in the country. You know, I spent a large part of this year reading a lot of social theory, um, a lot of, you know, Pierre Bourdieu, Weber, Marx, uh, and a lot of folks who are thinking about power agency social reproduction um, and so this is something that has been on my mind in, in large part because of what you said because I went from being a public school teacher to being a, a doctoral student at Harvard and the way it has been astounding the way that people interact with me and how that has shifted for you know people are like oh what do you do I'm like I'm a teacher um, I'm like oh like in a, in a <laughs> way thank you so much right, for your it, so it's either it becomes this sort of <laughs> martyr you know uh, mentality where like oh you just thank you so much like I can't I can't imagine you must, you're so patient you just uh, or it becomes this sort of like cute and like cuddly like oh like alright and like and so what are you going to do next and it's like you know until I decided to go to graduate school I thought I was going to teach high school English for the next 20-25 years and, and be great I, I loved it I love sitting with young people and, and exploring literature as a reflection of ourselves. And, and, I, and I still teach, you know, even though I'm not teaching the classroom full-time, I still am traveling a lot and doing uh, writing workshops and still teaching in the prison, still teach part-time in Boston public schools. And so it matters a lot to me, and that is forever a part of my identity. Even, you know, I, I'm not a full-time classroom teacher in the same way, but I'm still, I'm still a teacher, I'm still an right. educator. It makes me think of a lecture that I heard uh, one of my favorite authors, Juno Diaz, give. And okay. so, if you're listening, Juno, I've watched every YouTube video of you online, not in a creepy way, but in a <laughs> deeply admirable way. And we're both in Boston, so hopefully we can, you know, I've been trying to get into his class, but it's really hard. But uh, he said, if I remember correctly, he was talking about the violence of vocation and how for kids, for young kids, the first, what we ask them so often, you know, when they're five years old, is like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And when we say that, we're not actually asking what they want to be in terms of their personhood, in terms of like who right, you want right, to right, be. Right. What kind we're of saying, person? what do you want to do? So from a young age, we're like inundating kids with this idea that what you do is a direct reflection of who you are. And this anxiety that they have to know what that no, thing exactly. is. Like my, my son is seven years old and he keeps saying he wants to be a multimedia artist because what he understands that to mean is yeah. that he can do everything then. Yeah, Like I can be a doctor, I can be that. And I found myself almost going like, well, you know, you're going to have to pick a path at some point. You know, <laughs> and then I'm like, what am I doing? Yeah. He's seven. And I think it's interesting because I think for people who their work reflects an extension of their values, it can be especially difficult, right? You all at Big Think, like, you all do this work because you, you value the idea of creating dialogue and getting ideas into the world. And that right. has a sort of, like, social utility that you are like, this is meaningful work. It is an extension of who I am as someone who values ideas and thoughts. And even for myself, education and, like, being a teacher and writing are, like, parts of who I am. But I think it's us who have to be the most careful to be able to recognize that even though our, our work and our occupation 
reflects elements of our values, that our jobs are not singular determinants of who we are. And I think it's hard. Because what if you lose your job? Yeah, no, exactly. Right? Who are then you? then right? what? You're going to go... And we live in a world that tells you if you lose your job, you are worthless. And, and it's hard, yeah. It's hard to like unlearn and, and recalibrate these yeah, things. Yeah, I'm not sure kind of what the way around that is. Kind of like De Bouton talked about. You get 30 seconds, right? And that like the aesthetics of what you look like, right. how attractive someone finds you, how much value they attribute to the institutions that you are part of or the credentials or accolades right. that you have. So let's go to, you started about how people would interact with you when you were a teacher. How do they interact with you differently now that you've won national poetry championships, yeah. UN ambassador, et cetera, et cetera, Harvard? Man, it's, it's crazy the difference a year makes. And so a year ago, a little more, you know, I was a high school English teacher. And even for people you know, that I, I grew up around, I think they expected more of me, so to speak. Like what, what more does that what, mean? Yeah, like why these are things that I deeply love and am passionate about and, and think that have real meaning. And then, you know, a year later, I now have two TED Talks um, at Harvard. And, you know, I've been deeply fortunate to have had many experiences that to the outside world reflect certain levels of, of success. And I'm like keenly aware of it and, and grateful for it. But it also means that there are people now who respond to my emails who probably wouldn't have before because it says .harvard.edu yep. and people who are more inclined to listen to what I have to say because I have an institution that has a specific connotation and, and has a certain level of social capital with sure. which to navigate the world. And so for me, it's always a question of not running away from it, right? I'm not, right. I'm not ashamed of these things. I've, I think I've worked hard and people have, in my life have worked hard to afford me the opportunities that I have and, right. and that means a lot. It's more so about, all right, now that this exists, how can, I, how can I both leverage it and sort of interrogate the idea of power in and of itself, right? So like for right. me, I think right. it's incredibly important. You know, I teach in a prison. And so some of the men that I work with in the prison are some of the most brilliant people I've ever met in my entire life. And I am ostensibly at a place, you know, Harvard is one of the top schools in the world, and I meet brilliant people there, but like there was nothing about the men who were in prison that I was working with that less made them less intelligent than... Yeah, so I mean, the question is whether, and I think Alain de Botton would want us to believe that there is a way to have a real meritocracy where right. people who have something to say can say it and be heard. And I guess we could say that the internet has helped to some extent with that. I mean, the internet doesn't necessarily care if you're from Harvard or not, right? right? Oh, hugely. I think, you know, I talk all the time about how, like, Twitter... I think has decentralized and democratized what it means to curate and be the, the arbiter and creator of knowledge. Right. right. I mean, all of what has happened over the course of the last year with Black Lives Matter and Ferguson onward has largely been catalyzed from Twitter and sort of like independent civic citizen journalists who have made it their, their task to document all the things that are transpiring right. in a way that mainstream media never would have. Um, it's like created a new space for who we think of as public intellectuals. I mean, I think that's a, a huge accomplishment of, of the internet. And that's not to say that there aren't issues and that it has completely eradicated traditional conceptions of power. But right. I think it has very much played a role in disrupting the status quo. Quinn Smith, thank you so much for being on the show today. This has been great. Is there any message or any piece of information, any other thing you'd like to leave the audience with besides what we've already talked about? Yeah, no, this has been great. You know, at the end of the day, both as a researcher and as a writer and as a 
educated. I'm interested in creating conversation and dialogue about things that we don't always necessarily know how or have the tools to talk about. If you could do me the honor of pressing the button on the random quote generator and reading the quote of the week to our audience. Truth never comes into the world but like a bastard to the ignominy of him that brought her birth. Milton. That's Think Again for this week. Please come and find us on the web at bigthink.com forward slash think again and on Twitter at bigthinkagain. Think Again.